0: Hello and welcome to the third episode of The European Lands. Today we're discussing the EU's place in the world after the US presidential election. And with the forthcoming change of the US administration, we will be in a new era, undoubtedly, of transatlantic relations between the EU and the US, following what was a very tense four years under the Trump administration. In today's podcast, we'll examine the challenges and the opportunities for the EU in this new world order. We will also look at the effect on Ireland and where the EU should position itself between those two major superpowers of the United States and China in the next decade. Later on, I'll be joined by David McAllister, a German colleague of mine and MEP, who is Chair of the influential Foreign Affairs Committee in the European Parliament. We'll also get the perspective of Declan Kelleher, former Irish Permanent Representative to the EU and former Irish Ambassador to the People's Republic of China. I worked very closely with Declan when I was Minister for Justice. I'll also be joined by Karen Bryants, President of the American Chamber of Commerce in Ireland and Country Manager of J.P. Morgan in Ireland. First though, I spoke to Phil Hogan, former EU Commissioner for Trade and former Commissioner for Agriculture and Rural Affairs. Phil, thanks for joining me on this podcast today. I'd like to begin by asking you to describe for us the actual experience I'm dealing with the Trump administration on trade issues as commissioner for the European Union. What was that like?
1: Well, as you can imagine, uh, Francis, it was a very difficult time at the Trump administration because the President of the United States stated four years ago that one of his objectives was actually the breakup of the European Union. So that was his opening position, which you can imagine in the European institutions and the member states, it created a little bit of a, a shock that our traditional relationship on a transatlantic basis between the European Union and the United States was being called into question by President Trump. And uh, it was a a matter of containment then over the last four years to try and ensure that he didn't achieve his objective. And we were, I suppose, in sporting terms, we were playing with our backs to the goal and uh, defending very much uh, in the last few years to ensure that Uh, any of the difficult issues that emerged, and which there were many, uh, that they were mitigated as much as possible from the European side uh, until another election, and then we would see what the result of that would be. And uh, President Trump uh, certainly caused great difficulties in terms of imposing additional tariffs on many products in the European Union in order to uh, crystallise what he thought was the big issue, is reducing the balance of payments deficit and the balance of trade deficits between the United States and the European Union. So a difficult time, and we try to contain it as best we can. And I, when I became Trade Commissioner in, in, in November 2019, my first job was to try and ensure that we had a reasonable relationship with Ambassador Lighthizer, who was the United States Trade Representative, and I worked hard at that over the last year.
0: Did you have a lot of contact uh, with him and uh, with officials generally? Was there a lot of work, a lot of emphasis in that area, trying to smooth relationships?
1: Every week there was always something where, on my desk that were uh, certainly affected the European Union and the United States relationship. And uh, it was a, a constant source of activity by, by the officials in DT Trade and myself to ensure that we didn't uh, miss an opportunity to try and mitigate the damage of some proposal that was emerging from the United States or to cooperate where we possibly could. And we got a breakthrough in January where we were able to sign up with the United States and Japan on a statement of intent in relation to tackling industrial subsidies, uh, which largely we were targeting China, uh, and putting uh, a trilateral proposal together uh, to the World Trade Organization and other countries and all the member countries of the WTO to ensure that we had a level playing field in relation to industrial subsidies.
0: Uh, Phil, you were at the heart of trade agreements uh, in the EU. You were looking at all of the details, and we have heard critical voices about various trade agreements. Uh, whether it's the Canadian deal or Mercosur, can I ask you what's your your sense of how important uh, those trade deals are? You know, both for Ireland and for the EU. And what do you think of those critical voices, whether it's on environmental issues or? Other concerns that, that certain groups may have, um, are they legitimate or do you feel they're exaggerated?
1: Well, I think that the concerns that are expressed by any citizen uh, and any group of citizens have to be taken seriously. And whether they're legitimate or not in the early stages is not the question. It's a question of explaining and informing and I don't think we're good at that in member states in the European Union, about the benefits of potential benefits of the Euro, that the European Union trade agreements make around the world. So there's a lot of work to be done there that we need to see member states speaking up. We have too many occasions where member states talk about the negative rather than the positive about trade agreements, and they allow interest groups to concentrate on the negative. But the winners, we never hear from them in relation to trade agreements. People companies and sectors uh, in Ireland or anywhere else that have actually seen the benefits of many agreements, they never speak up uh, and uh, this, is, this is tragic but the European Union has to work together with the member states to make a more positive narrative about the benefits of these agreements and it's not that we don't give information to the various ministries of trade in the European Union we give them a lot of information for example in Canada, which I know in Ireland is the subject of Uh, of a Dáil motion. 26% of an increase in agricultural trade uh, with Canada from the European Union in the last two years. Uh, Growing trade in terms of a a, a broad range of other sectors in pharmaceuticals and uh, machinery uh, and uh, digital services right across uh, the relationship between the EU and Canada.
0: And do you think therefore that the people who are criticising it are really mistaken uh, in terms of their criticism?
1: No, I don't, I don't see that at all. I think that NGOs in the environment area who have expressed some concerns about deforestation in the Amazon are perfectly correct in raising this issue. And that's why it took us so long to try and reach agreement with the Mercosur countries in relation to environment, uh, in relation to the precautionary principle, in relation to all of those countries signing up to the Paris Climate Agreement and coming forward with their, their national contributions towards achieving the objectives and the the targets and milestones that are legally binding before there could actually be any agreement between the EU EU, and Mercosur countries, for example.
0: Back to the transatlantic relationship, the EU and US, how will potentially uh, President Biden's election change things? Where are the new positives and where are the new challenges for both Ireland and the EU? How, How do you see that relationship developing over the next number of years?
1: Well, first of all, Ireland has a great opportunity in being the bridge builder between the European Union and the United States with the new president because, after all, he claims uh, very strong Irish-American uh, connections. So that's a positive. From the point of the European Union, I already had an informal uh, discussion with a number of the Biden team who were involved in trade matters to discuss what are the main issues that we could get involved in quickly in 2021. And I welcome the fact that the Biden, Joe, Joe Biden, the president-elect, has already stated that he wants to restore United States' involvement in the multilateral organizations which President Trump has left. So, in other words, we can see more intensive activity on the agenda in the World Trade Organization around e-commerce, around fisheries, around trade facilitation, around services, and reform in the organization itself. Because the WTO is a referee of trade matters, and if you don't have a referee, you can't have a game. And you can't implement the free trade agreements properly. The second thing is, is I think that we can resolve the outstanding issues that are irritating both sides rather quickly, like tariffs that have been imposed by President Trump arising from the Boeing Airbus dispute, which has been going on for 16 years. It's time we got brought this to an end and uh, put up the headstone over this one uh, very quickly and get on with removing the tariffs that are imposed on many products in the European Union.
0: So you see a lot of possibilities in terms of trade between America and the EU and and a developing relationship under President Joe Biden. Uh, We have a complicated relationship in the EU with China as well, as does America. How will China fit into that picture that you're painting uh, about future relationships?
1: Well, President Trump was correct in identifying China as a systemic rival as we call it in the European Union. And it took the European Union some time to agree with the United States on this issue. But in 2019, the Unkra Commission published a communication in March 2019 where it said for the first time that they regarded the subsidization of Chinese companies that were competing with European companies in an unfair way as something that was wrong and had to be tackled. And for the last six or seven years, the European Union are trying to do an investment agreement with China and are now making progress this year where we resolved a lot of issues in June and July around these issues about state-owned subsidies, around forced technology transfer, about unfair trading practices. So we can look forward I think to having a geopolitical position in Europe where we can work with the United States on the one hand, and work together on some of the difficulties that China are causing us in a more stronger and collective way than we have been under President Trump, but we also have to Realize that we have a very big economic relationship with China ourselves in the European Union.
0: So, a lot to do there. Let's turn to Brexit. Joe Biden has shown his support on Brexit. I'm sure you'd agree that was important, particularly around the Good Friday Agreement being protected. Um, how important is that for Ireland going forward in terms of trade negotiations?
1: Well, I think the government of Andy Kenney uh, deserved great credit and all of the diplomats and officials that were involved in the early stages of the mandate for the Brexit negotiations. where in April 2017, it included as part of the three major points of discussion for the divorce proceedings, as it were, on the withdrawal agreement, the, the recognition in that mandate by the European Council was that the unique circumstances of the island of Ireland had to be recognised in any solution, from the negotiations on Brexit. That was a major diplomatic success and political success. And uh, I believe that that set the scene then for uh, the European Union to support Ireland in such a magnificent way during these negotiations, which will make sure and ensure, with the help of our friends in the United States, that the Good Friday Agreement and all of the various chapters in that agreement are protected from the point of view of peace in the island of Ireland. The Irish protocol has dominated discussions in the early part of the negotiations. And can you imagine if all of those negotiations around Ireland were left when, in my view, they would have been held hostage to other issues of concern to the United Kingdom uh, in, uh, in, the, in the final days of these negotiations? So uh, I have to say that the political and diplomatic people of Ireland deserve great credit for that achievement and to make sure that it was removed early from the discussions but with a good outcome.
0: The degree of support across the EU has been extraordinary. How much work went on behind the scenes to ensure that? Obviously, a lot of work went on in public, but I'm sure your experience in the Commission that you saw a lot of effort going into that relationship over the years.
1: Well, there wasn't a week after the referendum that my, my role as an, as it was, a European Commissioner who happened to be from Ireland did not have some involvement in discussion with various people about how we could come to an arrangement or an agreement that was able to ensure that the Good Friday Agreement was protected and that the economic relationship between the UK and Ireland and the UK and the European Union was protected. And we were very fortunate that President Juncker proposed Michel Barnier to lead the negotiations. He and his task force have been very patient, but very thorough in an open and transparent with the European Council, the European Parliament and the Member States and all of the sectors in the Member States, uh, in order to ensure that he has, he had a grasp of every major issue that that would emerge in the discussions and he understand the nuances of those uh, important issues from the point of view of each Member State. Uh, Mr. Barney and his team really have done a, a, a tremendous job. And I think that the fact that he was a former commissioner for regional affairs, who When he was involved there, he established the Peace and Reconciliation Funds for the Good Friday Agreement. We were fortunate that he had experience in the internal market and financial services. So uh, he was also a former French Minister for Agriculture and Fisheries. So he brought a breadth of experience uh, in addition to the very pro-European sense that he brought to, to, the, to the discussions. Uh, uh, he, he certainly brought that respect as well from the point of view of everybody in the Member States that was a person we could rely on that would do the job professionally and well and represent us well in these negotiations. And I think he has generated the respect on the other side of the negotiations in the United Kingdom as well from the way he's handled things.
0: Now, Karen Bryants is with us next. Thank you, Karen, for joining me. What does a Biden administration mean for U.S. foreign direct investment into Ireland?
2: Hello, Francis, And uh, firstly, just thank you very much for inviting me along to speak on your podcast. Delighted to be here. I think in terms of a Biden presidency, we've got to acknowledge first off that it has to be a positive to have somebody who has such a deep affiliation with our country sitting in the White House next year. Um, We know he's very uh, proud of his Irish heritage, but I think more importantly, he knows our country very well. Uh, He spoke very early on with our Taoiseach, which was great, and he's been very outspoken uh, recently in his support with respect to Brexit and the importance of the Good Friday Agreement. Um, And I think more broadly, he's obviously shown that he's he is very respectful of the multilateral institutions in the world and also with the EU. So that's incredibly important to us as well.
0: Let me ask you, Karen, about the if you like the threat uh, to jobs in Ireland because of the Trump administration's wish to bring jobs back uh, to the West, to America. Has that impacted here in Ireland?
2: Well, interestingly, I mean, despite a lot of that rhetoric, what we found, I think, over the past four years um, while Trump was in the White House was actually an unprecedented level of inward investment to Ireland by multinationals and particular U.S. firms. And I think that isn't an accident. We've obviously had the right conditions that make it a really good place to invest in for U.S. firms. Um, Being part of the European market is critical to us. English-speaking, pro-business, etc. So it's very important for for these US firms to have a global presence. And I think Ireland has been really well positioned for that.
0: Let me go back to something Joe Biden has said. Um, He's been very strong about the Buy America programme. He's devoted £400 in a Buy American government procurement programme. Could he be
2: more effective, if you like, in bringing investment back to the USA? So I think it's it's probably a bit too early to predict um, how it's going to pay it, play out in a Biden administration. Um, I think certainly this sort of American first stance has gained quite a lot of traction in the last number of years across the political aisles in the US. Um, but I think we've seen recently uh, a number of Biden's cabinet appointments like Blinken for Secretary of State and Yellen for US Treasury. They're pointing a bit more towards pragmatism, internationalism and a bit more of a cooperative approach, which I think is positive. Um, so you know we do have to remember that US firms have been in Ireland for many years we have um, we're actually celebrating our 60th birthday in American Chamber next year so there's a lot of deep roots here Um, there's a lot of really interesting work happening very high up the value chain as well so I think you know Biden is, is is obviously going to focus on the US, but they are going to need to have um, international presence as well, uh, just in terms of, you know, where they want to sell goods and proximity to markets and access to markets. So I think, um, you know, again, Ireland just needs to make sure that it's positioned well for that.
0: Do you think the change of administration raises the prospects
2: uh, for the renewal of talks
0: uh, for an overarching trade agreement between the EU and the US?
2: I think it does. I mean, I think there's going to be um, more dialogue. The tone is going to be better. Um, but you know, I think you know we also need to to recognise that. Um, there are some difficult issues that need to be tackled, and I think we're much better off if we can to actually tackle those together to ensure that there is fair trade, to ensure that you know we have a, I guess, a coordinated approach with China, for example. Um. So, so I think there there is definite opportunities there, but it's not going to be an easy run by any stretch.
0: Finally, Karen, what's the biggest threat to US
2: businesses' uh, continued growth in Ireland, as you see it? that we would get complacent in Ireland, I suppose. I think we hold a really good position. Uh, We have huge amount of strengths, but we still, you know, it's a competitive environment. We have to keep evolving. We have to keep doing things better. Um, We have to, we have a great opportunity because we're a relatively small country. I think we work incredibly well between public and private sector. Um, People wear their green jerseys across all of the multinationals here in Ireland. So we do work well, Um, but we've got to make um, changes to ensure that we're really, Really at the forefront in terms of good place to do business. Um, and you know, it's it's a lot of the stuff we talked about earlier, things like our broadband, things like, you know, making us a great place to live and work from. I think those are probably the most important things that are within our gift to deal with. Um, but obviously we have to keep an eye on the broader US EU relationship and I think play our part there. And I think we we can play our part there. We know we're you know we know the US very well, we know the EU very well. And I think sometimes we can play a part in translating, I suppose, the EU to the US and the US to the EU.
0: We heard a lot there from both Phil and Karen about the importance of the transatlantic relationship and where the EU should position itself over the next few years. I want to take a look at the wider geopolitical situation in Europe now with David McAllister. David's a colleague of mine in the European Parliament. He's a former prime minister of Lower Saxony. And he's been an MEP since 14. Uh, David, I'm delighted that you can join me to discuss this important issue now of the relationship between the EU and US. Let me begin by asking you about your hopes for the Biden administration.
3: The election of Joe Biden will certainly give the transatlantic relations a new impetus. Our relationship is unique. It's built on shared history, shared values and shared interests. It's based on collective peace, progress and prosperity. And yes, things will get better. They can only get better because the last few years were rather challenging for transatlantic relations. We expect an American return to international organizations. I always argued that the United States shouldn't be leaving international organizations. They should be leading multilateral corporations together with others. And I very much welcome President-elect Biden's announcement to have a summit of democracies. We are ready together with like-minded partners, the United States, Canada, Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, Norway, and the EU27, just to name a number of democracies that together we want to shape the third decade of the 21st century.
0: David, you're chair of a very important committee in the Parliament, the Foreign Affairs Committee. Just how bad have things been under the Trump administration? What was your experience like?
3: Well, I don't think it's a secret to say that transatlantic relations were strained under the Trump administration. Uh, We had some very unusual language coming from the American president calling the European Union a foe. I thought that was disturbing. On the other hand, I wouldn't be over-enthusiastic about our expectations now. Of course our relations will improve, but it's not about going back to the old normal, whatever the old normal is and whenever the old normal was. It's more about defining the new transatlantic nations in this third decade of the 21st century.
0: Do you think that President Biden will want to recapture that sort of global leadership role And how will we position ourselves going forward between uh, those giants of America and China?
3: In recent weeks of three European institutions, the European Council, the European Commission, and we in the European Parliament have issued proposals for a new agenda as regards transatlantic relations. And our ideas, if you summarize them, Centre on stronger multilateral action and institutions, the pursuit of common interests, and leveraging our collective strength, as well as looking for solutions that respect our common values of fairness, openness and competition.
0: Do you think that now it's about more of an equal partnership between all of us? Uh, Do you even believe in that world where America would have a global leadership?
3: Yes, indeed, it is about a more equal partnership. To quote my German CDU party leader and defense secretary in Germany, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, she said, we want to remain transatlantic, but to remain transatlantic, we have to become more European. So it's about strengthening the European pillar in the transatlantic cooperation, as regards trade and technology on the one hand and political cooperation, and especially on security and defense on the other hand. Now, I am absolutely aware that Ireland is not a member of NATO, but for the European NATO member states, it's also about how can we strengthen European defense and security cooperation within the framework of NATO to also make this alliance a more balanced one. We will have to increase our own activities to reduce the dependency on of America.
0: Would you agree that the EU has got more distrustful of China in recent months? How will the relationship develop between the EU and China?
3: To define our relations with China, I was I would always go for the free seas, cooperate where possible, compete where needed, and confront where necessary. So, what does that mean? China. Will remain an important cooperation partner for us, for instance, in the fight against global climate change. We have similar views, we have similar, very ambitious targets. We want to be climate-friendly planet by 2050. China wants to be climate neutral in 2060. China is an economic competitor for us in the European Union. And we have always been for competition, but we are for free and fair competition. And that is a difference in the moment. The standards are simply not there. And we expect many things to change in China to give our businesses the same opportunities as Chinese businesses have here in Europe. But it's also about confronting China. China is a systemic rival. The communist leadership in Beijing has totally different views than we do. When it comes to democracy or the rule of law and we have to name things as they are china is far away from our western democratic standards china does not have the rule of law there is no media freedom in the country it is not a pluralist society and if you look at the situation of the Uyghurs in western china it is one of the most outrageous systematic violation of human rights we are facing in the moment in the world and we have to address these issues and also it's about foreign policy the Chinese attitude towards Hong Kong or Taiwan from our point of view is not acceptable and we have to make clear that to cooperate economically doesn't mean that we should not be outspoken where we have differences and here I also see an issue for developing a new transatlantic agenda, we will not always agree with the Americans how to deal with China. And we might take a more pragmatic and a more balanced approach than even than a US administration under Joe Biden. But we need to work on a strategy, how we can deal with this new challenge of China in the whole Western world.
0: After four years of the Biden administration, How should the EU-US relationship look, David? What's your vision of what might happen in the next four years?
3: Well, we're just starting to define our new relations. It might be slightly too early to already uh, have a look back. Um, I think the most important thing is that we get this new transatlantic dialogue started now. Uh, I do hope that a transatlantic global agenda could be launched at an EU-US summit in the first half of uh, 2021. What we have to do now is reach out to the new administration in Washington. And it's mainly about fostering understanding and continuing a dialogue by demonstrating the American side, the added value of cooperation. Uh, We need to analyze the threats and swiftly identify the most pressing areas where transatlantic cooperation should focus on. I mentioned a number of issues, like the fight against the pandemic, the socioeconomic consequences, climate change, trade, multilateral cooperation, technology, but also, and this is important for me as Chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee of the European Parliament, it's also about human rights globally, and it's about foreign policy initiatives, not only on China and Russia, but also the Western Balkans, the Middle East, or Africa, we stand together for a billion people. We stand together for the largest and strongest free trade area in the world. Perhaps it will be possible not to have a fully fledged free trade agreement as we originally planned, but we can certainly improve our trade relations too.
0: What a fascinating insight from David on a wide range of EU foreign policy areas. I'm now joined by Declan Kelleher, former Irish ambassador to China and Irish permanent representative to the EU. Declan, I want to ask you first about this idea, this concept of global leadership. Does it still exist? Who are the leaders in the world now? And how do you position the EU uh, amongst other countries? Are we really a battleground between China and America or can we stand independently and alone? Uh, What's your view of that?
4: Well, I, I was I was amused by something a Netherlands Prime Minister Mark Rutte said a few weeks ago, uh, at least it was reported to have said, it says that um, you're either a player or you're the playing field. <laughs> so I think it's important that the European Union be a player. But I also think it's important that um, the, the limits of what's possible are understood. I mean, the European Union is an extraordinary um, initiative in terms of um, um, exporting peace, um, prioritizing democracy, although there are some problems as you know, with rule of law within the EU at the moment in one or two member states. But essentially, if one were to use the the language of geopolitics, the European Union would be seen as probably the, the largest exporter of soft power in the world look at development aid, look at democracy, look at the single market, which is probably the European Union's greatest geopolitical achievement, and hence why it's so important in the Brexit context to preserve it. I think it's important to be aware what what the constraints are. China has a different conception of multilateralism from the European Union conception. Um, I think it's important that the European Union does play to its strengths, and that means two things in my view. Number one, a kind of a relentless focus on the importance of multilateral cooperation. And number two, as the European Union has been showing, um, a more astute and more assertive approach to uh, international affairs. And that can embrace various issues, such as being more assertive and less, if you like, uh, naive, if you like, on trade issues, uh, being more assertive on uh, standing up for European Union values, Does the EU
0: build on its strengths
4: enough? I think um, the European Union does deploy its strengths, but remember that across the range of, if you like, activities, uh, the European Union has different sets of competences and powers. For example, we saw in relation to the recent and ongoing crisis and COVID, I think the European Union has um, managed to, to deal with things in a reasonably effective way. But of course, health is not a community competence. I think that's one issue. It might be an issue that'll come up the next time we look at a treaty change, but trade is a community competence. And you can see that the European Union is particularly effective and organized around the trade issues. Foreign and security policy is a kind of curious mix. That has to be borne in mind, Francis. Back to China for a moment. Does the EU need to be stronger on China, even if it hurts us economically. Well, I'm I'm not so sure there's there's a, a kind of an either or on that one, Francis, because I think the European Union, um, you know, has a deeply uh, structured relationship with China but certainly uh, over the last year or so, the European Union has become more assertive. And I say under those three headings of a partner on, particularly on things like global goods, like climate change um, and uh, the green economy and those kind of collective challenges. um, On trade, the European Union has become, I think more assertive and stronger and uh, more, more demanding. That's very interesting. A final question, Declan. Where do you
0: see Ireland fitting in uh, to the new geopolitical landscape following Joe Biden's uh, victory in the the US presidential election?
4: Ireland on its own is not a geopolitical player. Ireland is um, a small state. You know, if we look at ourselves alone in the world, by ourselves we have a very limited capacity to influence our external environment or to influence the great kind of uh, um, kind of uh, conflicts in the world. And that's why we have made it a centerpiece of our approach both within the European Union and more broadly uh, cast foreign policy to support uh, international cooperation. Um, I think the EU is uh, a success story, despite the challenges and despite problems that arise and the EU is an important uh, example for the broader world and the EU is still something that states want to join. Now, the British have gone, Ireland is absolutely committed to staying, but we have been quite actively uh, reaching out to all of our partners um, just to ensure that uh, we keep the relationships um, very, very vibrant and that the Irish view is fully understood. And we understood the views of all of our partners and that it wasn't always like that in the earlier years of our membership of the European communities we tended to be sometimes minimalist is the wrong word but we tended to tuck in and see which way the wind was blowing I think now we're, we're still wise so we're not going to do anything silly but I think we're much more present uh, visible and assertive and I think that's the right thing to be and particularly as well as we're now a net contributor to the EU budget.
0: Thanks to all of my guests for joining me on this episode, and I hope it gave you an insight into the EU-US relationship in a post-Trump world and what we can expect here in Ireland over the next four years with the incoming Biden-Harris administration. An interesting, challenging and promising time ahead, I expect. We'll be back soon with another episode of The European Lens. Until then, thanks for listening and take care.